listening to Canary Cry Radio. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle, and were gathered together at Shoko, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shoko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron bearing a shield went before him and he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them why are ye come out of set your battle in array am not I of the listing and ye servants of Saul choose you a man for you and let him come down to me if he be able to fight with me and to kill me then will we be your servants if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Hey everybody! <laughs> hey everybody, and welcome to Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil, and this is Gons. Welcome to episode number eighty. Yay! <laughs> I'm always hoping for something creative, but you know. Well, I feel like I, 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 you know, my first instinct is always to go, "That's one more." It just keeps getting bigger, but I think that joke wore out long, long ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Uh, we have today. A guest who is a returning guest. He was here back in episode number 45, and he had a cameo in episode 63. Oh, yeah. He's the uh, award-winning screenwriter, and uh, he is the novelist of the Chronicles of the Nephilim. He's here to talk about David Ascendant, our good friend, Brian Godawa. Brian, yeah. welcome back. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on this new episode, David and the Giants. 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 <laughs> You've been waiting this whole time to do that. I think that's excellent. Um, <laughs> yes, David Ascendant, the seventh book in the Chronicles of the Nephilim series. Um, I mean, I know I've been waiting all year for this. How about you, Gans? Absolutely. But before we before we get going here, oh boy! If if you, I don't know if you listened to our, uh, you know, your cameo appearance back in episode sixty three. This was back uh, the live show. Yeah. Uh oh. Yeah. And uh, you know, Basil, uh, you know, uh, this is a misunderstanding. You, you love bringing this up. I do. I just, I just you think it's so love funny bringing this up. <laughs> I oh love it gosh. because it's so funny. Well, Basil, well, on the this fly, was the live one. This was the I know, live. Episode. I know. I know. No, I know you know. I'm telling everybody else. <laughs> okay. Don't get sassy so, with me, Gon. As, <laughs> as we were calling different guests up, one of them happened to be Brian. 
And Brian was walking up, and Basil goes, If only we had a friend in the building who is an award-winning screenwriter. Oh, there he is, Mr. Giant Face. So, Basil, I want you to explain yourself to Mr. Brian. I don't feel like I need to explain myself, because we had a 30-foot projection screen with your face on it. I just want to know, how did that feel? Oh, I felt like, like a Nephilim. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a better answer than I could have even contrived. That's great. Yeah, it, it was because I remember, because what happened was I just turned around and there you were. The picture we had for you, like, like we had other people, but it's like a, a bust picture, you know? It's like their whole upper body. <laughs> oh. But the picture we had for you was just like, your face. Okay. It's 30 feet tall. All uh, right. Fair I mean, enough. I liked it. it. I mean, I feel like we should do that all the time, even <laughs> okay. if it just has well, nothing to do with you. Well, Basil, I will never bring that up again. I just wanted to say it one more time. But moving on, Dr. Mike Heiser was recently on Beyond Extraordinary with Natalina. And she actually seems to have found something out about you and Dr. Mike Heiser, possibly working on a project. Is there anything you can tell us about it? Uh, not really. We're in, we're, ta- we're in talks. We're in negotiations. We are ta- discussing pos- a po- working together on a possible project. Okay. That's, about, that's about all it is right now. In fact, we're going to have more clarity after this month because um, we're going to get together at the SBL conference, which is the so- Society of Biblical Literature. And uh, we're going to see each other there and, and, and have a little bit more detailed discussions about something. So, But, you know, yeah, we'll announce it if, if, if it happens. Cool. All right. All right. That's fair enough. Okay. All right. So let's talk about David Ascendant. Um, this is the seventh book in the series. And... Yeah. I am on the website right now, and I would just like to start the conversation by <laughs> saying that you have like the most awesome media that you have on the website. You've got these pictures of the characters in your book, and they, I mean, did you get these taken? Or, or did, did <laughs> like, these are amazing. The characters are just so, I don't know, imaginative and well Thank you. shot and it's just great i look i'm scared of most of them <laughs> like i have physical visceral reactions of fear like this is awesome uh, yeah that's a very good a very good thing to point out i appreciate that basil you know the thing is um I, I have been a graphic designer for many years, so that's one of the reasons why I designed my whole website, all my book covers and everything. And one of the things that I wanted to do was um, I wanted to sort of cast my stories because yeah. visual I'm a visual artist, not just a writer, and visuals help me actually process things and stuff. So what I did actually was, believe it or not, all those pictures are simply... Um, I, I go on one of the uh, stock photo websites, you know, that uh-huh. are on the internet. Um, Shutterstock, in particular, is is the one that you know you pay a certain price and you get access to all of them. And they have so many of them. And of course, you know, eighty percent of them are total garbage, you know, right? Yeah, really cheap stuff. But nowadays, like ten years ago, it was really hard to find something good. But now, I am blown away because I go searching for like in pictures of warriors, just you know. Type in warriors, and you get so many options right. that I found. I was able, I, you know, it takes me like a good three or four f- days of full time labor looking for pictures, 
But I find that I can find pretty much a cool picture that kind of fits every character that I've written in all my Chronicles of the Nephilim. So if you go to the website, chroniclesofthenephilim.com, you click on one of the books, and then you select synopsis slash characters. It'll show you a synopsis of the story, and then that's where I have my little pictures of my characters, and I give you brief descriptions of them. And I just found that actually, believe it or not, I cast my books when I'm about halfway through writing them. Because what I found was, I actually sometimes find... uh, when I'm casting, I find characters that give me ideas for my characters in my novels that I hadn't thought of. Mm. And so, a lot of times, those pictures have influenced my, my novels and given me story elements. I, I, sometimes some real critical story elements, like, um, you know, there was one where I had uh, a picture of, of Joab, and uh, it had a scar on his face, and I, I, you know, I thought, well, should I you know, get rid of that scar in Photoshop. I thought, no, no, I can, I can make it part of his character. And then I realized that it actually fit into one of the major plot points of the story with Joab and Abishai and David. Right. And uh, p- people are going to love it. So anyway, yeah, that's, it's, it's the visuals help me to cast, but it also kind of gives people a feel for, for the, kind of like movies, you know, because I, I come from the movie world, so I like to, ha- I like to make things look like movies, and, and that's yeah. just part of the process. No, and this very much so uh, accomplishes that. It looks like a fully cast, like, um, gnarly Hollywood movie that I want to see. But, <laughs> I mean, I think it's so great because when you are reading books, you know, we, we all kind of cast the characters in our heads ourselves, which some would argue is, is you know, the, the beautiful thing about books, which is true in some sense. But this right here, giving me a visual of it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of wish that I had free time right now to go read the book and, uh, <laughs> instead of just talking about it. Cool. But there you go. So that's awesome. Also, on your website here, you have some awesome trailers, too, as far as, you know, making the, the whole uh, movie element go. Yeah. 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 I, uh, again, that comes from my movie background, and nowadays, you know, it's books... Book advertising marketing has picked up a lot from movies, and so even uh, traditional book publishers now make little book trailers, but they're usually pretty cheap and not very interesting to me, and I just felt like, you know, I I don't have the money to make something look like a movie trailer, but... Again, if you go to these stock video pauses and you look really hard and long, you might you find some really cool images that end up becoming very useful. And so uh, I've made a trailer for each of the books in the in the series, and it's been again, it's been one of my uh, inspiring processes for processing the story as I'm writing it. Absolutely, and I mean, me and Gans were talking about this before, and some of our listeners might know that I have um, a tendency to uh, explore the vocal uh, creativity that God has blessed me with. Um, And the first time I read this or I watched this trailer, I just instinctually started reading some of the text you have. Uh And um, I I would like to audition right (laughs) for for your next trailer voice. Okay, are you ready? All right. Here we go. Israel, 1000 BC, a mad king, an evil witch, fallen watchers, war 
Philistines and six giant assassins all out to kill the chosen one David of Judah <laughs> so there you go there's my <laughs> You like that? Oh, you're you're hired. <laughs> I'm out of here. I got a real job now. <laughs> I love it. So there, there's a little taste for everybody. Make sure you go check out the trailer for the book. Um, okay, there you go, Gons. You got anything? I kind of just hijacked this, trying to uh, <laughs> further my career in in uh, voiceover yeah. artistry. So uh, one of the things that we noticed when we were watching the trailer here is. Um, Early on, you know, we, we weren't sure if the imagery of the lizard eye, the reptilian eye, was a Philistine or if it was reference to the Watchers or, or what. But we wanted to ask you, like, what what was the lizard eye? And if it was a Philistine, were the Philistines reptilians? No. Okay. Uh, the Philistines were not. Yeah. The, the, the uh, reptilian eye really has to do with the Watchers being, you know, the seed of the serpent and... Yeah. and uh, you know that's that's the connection. So, but however, obviously, uh, one of the connections that I do make is you know that the Nephilim being the offspring of, I'm sorry, yeah, the Nephilim being the offspring of the wa fallen watchers with the human women, um, they might be connected to that in some way. Uh, but I I didn't give them reptilian eyes. You know, I think based on my research, and and this isn't. You know, there's not a lot of material to, to in this area, but in the the Rephaim um, in the time of David. You know, you you'll hear the term Rephaim a lot during in First uh, and Second Samuel and, and Chronicles, and that term is a reference to the giants. And I think that based on my research, it appears that the Rephaim has a long ancient history of meaning of what it meant. You know, it used to mean in Ugarit, it used to mean. Um, uh, dead fallen warrior kings who also were, may have been giants. Right. And then in the earlier pages of the Bible, like you know, Genesis and, and uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, Rephaim appear to be a specific clan of giants in the, in the promised land, along with the Anakim, the Emim and the Zemzumim and, and such. And then, by the, and then by the time of David, it, it seems like either the, the Rephim are the only ones being referenced, the only clan maybe still alive, or I think more than likely it became a generic term for the giants. And the leftover giants, such as you know, Goliath and, and the other giants there, were not necessarily Philistines in the sense, uh, like they were Philistine um, citizens, so to speak, but I think that they were in, uh, indigenous to Canaan, whereas the Philistines mm. were sea peoples who came and marauded Canaan and set up their cities on the coast. And so, doing research into that, my point is, is that I don't think that the, ref the Rephaim, uh, like Goliath, are, are necessarily Philistine by birth, you know what I mean? They're more like right. Philistine citizens. Oh, that's actually really interesting. And that kind of brings me to my first point that I'd like to uh, talk about. And that is, I mean, you have such a creative um, exposition about what you're doing. And, uh, you know, you're taking these biblical kind of fringe topics here and turning them into basically fantasy fiction, um, yeah. which is something that uh, authors have done before and have been doing. But this is a really interesting way to do it 
you know, yeah. instead of instead of replacing characters, you know, with other characters, like replacing some biblical figure with, uh, say, a wizard or a hobbit or something yeah. like that. You know, you're actually telling the story more or less with the the true characters. Um, yeah. When going through this project, I mean, obviously, there's there's a lot of room to play around, but. Um, it seems like you put a lot of work into staying as true as you can. Yeah, that was a, a tightrope that I walked because, you know, I knew that if I'm going to retell Bible stories, which is what the Chronicles of the Nephilim does, basically the premise of the Chronicles of the Nephilim was, I, you know, years ago when I first looked into the Nephilim, I discovered, oh my gosh, there's a storyline here under under underneath that that runs throughout the whole bible mm -hmm. something that i hadn't seen before with my western eyes and when i found that storyline i thought this story has to be told but of course the bible's huge right and there's so many stories and so many details you can't tell it all so i thought well here's gonna be the premise of the series i'm gonna only retell those stories in the bible where nephilim or giants are or maybe watchers are talked about and so that became the premise but then i th i said okay there's there's a supernatural element going on here, and um, I wanted to show the spiritual warfare. But I, look, you know, we don't we don't really see what's behind the curtain. We don't really know, and so right. anything is going to be a guess. And I thought, well, I'll 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 do it with a touch of fantasy to it to it, and then that way people won't get the impression that you know oh. Oh, you're, you know, you're just making up all this fantasy stuff and the Bible's just a fairy tale. It's like, no, I'm using the genre to tell a theological novel, not a historical novel. Ooh. It may very well be something similar to this, for all I know, but I don't know. So, um, I decided to push the envelope and say, okay, I'm going to show the spiritual warfare. But, but then I also thought, well, there's some cool poetic images in the Bible that, that I wanted to make them come alive. And so, for example, the, the example I always use is Leviathan, because, you know, Leviathan is a, is a monster in the, in the Bible, a sea monster in the Bible. And, you know, there are different interpretations of that. Some Christians think that it's a dinosaur. I don't. I studied it, and I'm convinced that, it's a, uh, that Leviathan is a sea dragon of chaos, and it's deliberately symbolic to represent the chaos of the world that uh, God pushes back and, and in order to create his covenanted order. So, it's bringing order out of chaos. And, you know, so that he, like in Psalm 73, you know, talks about God establishing his covenant with Moses and how he, put, he crushes the, head of Levi, the heads of Leviathan mm -hmm. as he brings him through the, through the Red Sea. So, that's, that's a symbolic reference to God creating his covenanted order out of chaos. But I thought that is such a cool image. I want to literalize that. And I'm, so, I literally have a, a sea dragon with seven heads that shows up in the tales. But, Anyone who's reading it will know that I'm not uh, turning the Bible into myth. I'm just sort of um, telling a theological story, and I'm bringing out those theological spiritual elements. And as the series goes on, I, I try to become a little bit more and more realistic in, in terms of um, in terms of those fantasy images, a, a little bit less fantasy and a little bit more reality. But at the end of the day, we really don't know because I'm filling in a lot of lines in between the scriptures. But my goal was to retell the story and try to stay as true as I can to the original text because obviously my readers have a high regard for the Bible and high regard for it and sort of fill in between the, the lines in a way that is consistent. And right. so, sure, you know, sure, I, I, I sometimes have to telescope time. I leave out events and characters because you, you can't tell everything. But in terms of just staying true to what we do know, I did my best to do that. 
And that, that was sort of my goal, my fence, uh, my tightrope walking of between showing supernatural and using fantasy and also trying to stay true to the text. Awesome. Now, the, this is the seventh book in the series. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the way that you've set them up, are you able to just pick up the most recent or pick up any of them and just sort of uh, go, go for it from there? Or, yeah, is, or a, is there a value in reading them in order? Well, uh, both. Uh, I do try to write them so that they can be standalone because I realize that each of these stories, for instance, uh, I tell the story of the, the promised land, Joshua and Caleb, right? And, uh, but then, you know, of course, that's, that's 400 years after Abraham, which is the previous book. So there's like huge periods of time in between these books. So technically, you can, they are standalone. You could pick them up if you like the story of David or you just want to read the story of Abraham. You can do that and you can still um, enjoy the story. However, they are written in such a way that they are so integrated with each other and there is a underlying developing plot that carries over with the watchers and with the gods, the ancient gods of the, of the pagan world and such. There is, and, you know, and of course God's plan as well. So there is a storyline that you will get more out of it if you read it in the series, but you don't have to, to, to be able to appreciate the story. They, they are kind of standalone in and of themselves, or at least I hope they are. <laughs> Tell awesome. me if they aren't. I don't know. I mean, I tried, I tried to, I tried to make them that way. Well, uh, in this, uh, in David Ascendant, you mentioned previously the sons of Rapha and, you know, the most famous one being Goliath. And, you know, everyone kind of knows Goliath as the giant, but I think you, you seem to have brought in some different characters <laughs> Along with Goliath, can you speak on some of those, like Lami and, sure. uh, you know, Saf? And I mean, there are Saf. a few others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, okay, so I come at the book and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, the story of David, you know, it's, it's the one biblical hero that we have the most information about, right? And it's also, you know, one of the most beloved stories because it's so detailed. And in fact, in terms of biographies, in the ancient world, it was kind of unique in terms of it's being closer to a modern sort of way of telling a story than in the ancient world. So people know a lot about it. And of course, David and Goliath story is to me, it's almost, you know, it's cliche. And I'm thinking, oh, how can I write something that's interesting? But what I discovered was, okay, what was my goal? My goal was only tell the stories that are related to the giants. And Goliath wasn't the only giant. And that was the amazing, exciting thing I discovered in my research was uh, there are several passages in, in, in 1 Chronicles 20, 2 Samuel 21, 1 Chronicles 11, and 2 Samuel 23. And some of these are duplicates, but, but um, there, those several passages, just sort of out of context, out of place, they, they have in complete paragraphs where they describe um, these giants who went after David. Like, for instance, in 2 Samuel, it says, Ishbi Benab. One of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, who was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And then it goes on and it lists more giants who were after David and his mighty men who killed them. And I thought, wow, that's really fascinating. And they even named some of them, like you mentioned. Ishbi Benab was one, Saf was another, and then Lami, the brother of Goliath. And of course, wow. we, you know. That's an easy one, right? Revenge for Goliath, that would be an easy one. But what's the connection of these other ones? And they're all spoken of in the same paragraph context. And so I read, um, there's this one scholar, uh, Conrad LaRue, 
and I have I have his article on my website actually for free. You can go on the website and read it. He makes this argument that if you look at the Hebrew of the the phrase descendants of the giants, which is what all of these you know, Saf was a descendant of the giant, Ishbi Benab was a descendant of the giant, and this phrase keeps coming over and over. And in the Hebrew, it's actually Yelid Ha Rafa, and of course Rafa is a reference to those giants. But the Yelid, this scholar, makes this point that it's it's pro- the, the the phraseology is is the kind of phraseology that you would use for a military cult. So it's almost like these guys might be a part of a specific military cult with a particular agenda, and they you know Rafa might be some giant deity that they worship, or it, it could be a reference to their identity as, as giants, right? And so I thought, wow, that's fascinating, and it makes sense because if if the the you know the the premise of the whole series, Chronicles of the Nephilim, goes back to Genesis three sixteen, where it says, or three fifteen, where it says, you know, God's cursing the serpent, and He says, "I will put enmity between your seed and her seed, and He will crush your head; you will bite His heel." And and many scholars will say that that's the first messianic prophecy, and that's what the whole series is is about. It's the seed of the serpent versus the seed of Eve, or now the seed of Abraham, and the seed of the serpent, you know basically is connected to the Nephilim and the Watchers, but also basically those who reside in the land of Canaan that God is going to dispossess. Mm. And by the time of David, by the time of Joshua, Joshua went into the promised land, and you know, we're all familiar with Numbers 32 where it talks about there's giants in the land, the Anakim, and, and they're frightful of them, fearful of them. Well, Joshua goes in and he basically wipes them all out. And then in Joshua 11, it says, Joshua hunted down all the Anakim in all the land, specifically taking out the giants, uh, and I think that's because they're connected to the seed of the serpent. And then it says, but he left some of them, but he, but he, but he left some of them in, in the cities of Gath and Gaza and on the coast. Mm. And, and a couple, I think Ashkelon or something, but they're basically the cities of the Philistines. So it says that Joshua left he killed, wiped them all out except for those in the cities of some of the Philistines. And then now, by the time of David, you know, um, uh, in 1000 BC, which is, you know, maybe 300 or 200, 300 years later, depending on what view you have. But nevertheless, David comes along and he's the Messiah King. He's the anointed one, the Messiah King of Israel. And he's the, right, he's the, he's actually the sort of the epitome of what the ultimate Christ will be, right? right. And so David comes in and there's these le- giants left over and they've sort of proliferated now. And Goliath is one of the first champions that he faces down. And so there's, there's a symbolic thing going on here with David killing the last of the Rephaim, but then he goes into all these battles against the Philistines, and then we get this listing of these giants who were specifically after David. So, David Ascendant, I chose to tell the story. Everyone thinks of David, you know, David and Goliath and David and Bathsheba, right? My story ends before David and Bathsheba. It tells the whole ascendancy of him to a, to kingship oh. but it deals with goliath in the context that that there may have been this this military cult that was hunting the messiah the messiah king to kill him and so david as a messiah king ends up his men or or him uh kills the last of of these giants in the land and then there are battles against that in in, in a in a valley that they ended up calling the valley of the rephaim so, in asking myself this question about what story am I going to tell, you know, I figured I'm going to tell the story of these giants, go into the Philistine culture, um, 
really go in depth into that and make that come alive. And of course, we don't know anything about these giants because the Bible only names them and then says they were killed by someone. So I'm making up all their stories, but in a way that is consistent. And then David as the Messiah King, it talks about him um, having these battles in the Valley of the Rephaim, which is a, you know, a title of the valley that I think is indicated by the fact that he killed, the la- killed all those Rephaim giants in his battles Right. As, he, as he took over the promised land. And after the, after the time of David, then, we never really hear anything more about giants. Um, and so, uh, that's, that's the story that I, I chose to tell. And, um, but I also said, you know what, I wanted to have the romances of David with his wives, Abigail and Michael, and, and so I have those in there as well. And I also try to tell the story of David himself and how his personal struggles as a, a man after God's own heart, but he also w- had a weakness for women, and he was a man of much bloodshed. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to show that complex character of a sinful, a sinful human being that God chooses to be his 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 um, you know means of accomplishing his purposes, right. and to show that that he uses imperfect sinful vehicles or, or uh, vessels to accomplish his purposes. And that should be an encouragement to, to, I think, to many of us because, you know, many of us feel like failures or, or feel like such sinners when we, come, when we look at our lives, you know? Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you know, David had some, some pretty saucy moments. Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the age range is on this book, but... Uh, <laughs> Do we, do we well, get a little peek behind the veil in some of those? Well, if anybody has read the series, they know that it's at least PG-13. Uh, so it is a little, it is a little um, progressive in that sense. But I, you know, I try to deal with the realities of of depravity, both violence and sexuality, without going into too much detail. But I don't hide it. Mm-hmm. But I also try to show good married love in contrast to that evil sexuality. So, um, you know, that's one thing that I think really lacks is, is that uh, I think a lot of Christians might be, when they try to tell their stories, they try to avoid showing the depravity and showing the evil because they think that that's exploitative or that creates right. bad images in our minds, yada, yada. But I think the Bible itself is rated R in many places. And so, and I think that the, the power of the, the redemption of your story is only as good as the accuracy with which you depict the evil that you're redeemed from. Right. And so I do deal with evil sexuality, evil violence and such, but I also contrast it and I try to show what good married life is and married love and more than just, oh, they loved each other and they kissed each other because that doesn't show anything. That, that, that's not a comparison. If you read the Song of Solomon... You you'll find yeah it's not pornographic but it is erotic and it is very there is it is poetic but it's also in the original Hebrew it's actually more explicit than it is in the English translations because our English translators were actually more prudish and so my point <laughs> here is that I I try to contrast good married erotic love with the evil uh, sexuality. But again, I try not to be pornographic about it, and I try to be PG-13 so that you're showing that reality. So when God's redemption comes in, it has that power that I want it to have. Awesome. Right. So it's, it's not quite the, uh, the drugstore paperback romance novel? But... No. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> but it's not your Christian Amish romance. <laughs> you had uh, just recently been on Like Flint, and I, and I recall you talking about the power of redemption in your stories, uh, or any story, that you know the redemption aspect of it is only as good as the evil that it portrays. So I, I think, you know, getting into David's, I mean, he, you were mentioning how he's a complex character. It makes sense that, you know, you kind of have to show his human side to, you know, really get to that, that point of the redeeming aspect of the story. Do, do you carry that through? And does it, you know, do you have that element in every story or every book that, you know, its own, yeah. its own redemption element? Yes, I do. And each character that I, whether it's Joshua or Caleb or whatever, each character is, uh, I try to make them a complex, realistic human being, and, and they have a character arc where they grow. So Joshua, yeah, Joshua was victorious, but he wasn't sinless. And so in, in my Joshua book, I have a major issue, a problem with violence that, that he has to overcome. And the same thing with David. You know, I, I have David, you know, in, in, in the story of David and Abigail, Abigail was originally married to Nabal, this guy, this, you know, wicked rich man. And, uh, but David was treating him, I mean, if you look at the text, it, it looks to me like David was pretty much treating him like a, uh, like a mafia would with uh, protection money, you know, like, oh, I'm taking care of you. I'm watching over your shepherds uh, and protecting them. So give me a bunch of food, you know, for this for this uh, party we're going to have. Right. And the guy's like, well, I didn't ask you to protect them, you know. And so David is 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 not perfect either. He does some things that God doesn't necessarily approve of. But that's I think that's the whole point is that is that um, Bible heroes are not uh, perfect men. They're sinners just like us. And um, in fact, in many ways, if you look at a lot of ancient literature, their hero stories are much more hagiographic, which means they are much more like perfect guys, you know what I mean? Right. And, and the Bible heroes are kind of unusual in that they show the faults of their heroes. Why? Because the ultimate hero is their God, Yahweh. Yahweh is the only one who is perfect, and He uses broken vessels to accomplish His purposes. You know, yeah. so yeah, that was that was that's been my goal in all the books, and all the heroes of my books have character arcs that where they learn something and they f have to find redemption. Whether it's Noah, Abraham, Joshua, or even David. Right. Now you mentioned uh, a few times, you know, how this isn't your traditional. Uh, sort of Bible story, or it's, um, I wouldn't say reimagined, but, you know, told in a different way. And uh, you try your best to stay along the, the biblical guidelines. And yet there's, you know, I, well, maybe even more so with the biblical guidelines, all the romance and the violence and things like that. Um, have you felt any pushback from anybody about your stories or the way that you go about telling them? You know, quite frankly, not not really. I I actually expected to get some negative responses, you know, because I, I'm you know I don't come at this like a fundamentalist where it's like you know every jot and tittle I have to follow in the Bible and you know my interpretation and is it you know um, I'm very. <sighs> Yeah, you know, like I said, I fill in some some gaps with imagination and such, and I expected there to be more of a backlash against me, but there really hasn't been. Sure, there's always a few people who are going to say, you know, well, that didn't happen to the Bible, or that's not like that, or, you know, they have disagreements with me, but I haven't been attacked. It's just been a handful of people that have really um, lashed out at it. Most, like if you go to Amazon and you look at all the responses on there, you know, uh, 
not all of them like the book, but but um, there's very few. Most of them basically get it. They get it. They say, okay, he's not trying to write scripture here. He's trying to retell the story, and he's trying to imbue it with a theological perspective. They get it, and I'm I'm really proud of the fact that that shows that a lot of Christians these days have a much more sophisticated understanding of literature, which is very encouraging to me. On the other hand, I haven't sold millions of copies yet, so uh, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, I, it may be a bestseller on the Amazon biblical fiction list, but I'm not selling hundreds of thousands or anything like that. And I'm sure that if I started to sell a lot more of these, if I started to get up into the, the New York Times bestselling list or whatever, I'm sure I'll get attacked by a lot of fundamentalists or types who who would who would who would really you know, hate my use of fantasy in there. Right, right. Yeah, well, I see here on Amazon, I mean, you've got a lot of good ratings. You're, there's nothing lower than four and a half stars. So you're, cool. you're, you're doing well, I think, here. I think I got a couple of ones and twos, but, you know, every book is going to have that. And if you look at those, they're kind of goofy, and you go, okay, this guy's just a goofy, a goof, a goof nut, you know? Goof but, nut. <laughs> yeah, goof nut. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, yeah, no, I've I've really been surprised. But like I said, you know, I think if I if it gets more and more popular, more people might come out of the work and be more nitpicky about it. You know, like I've had some people. What's ironic is I've had some responses of people who agree with me more gener generally, like about the Nephilim, because that's another thing in in Christendom. I think. Most conservative Christians don't want to deal with the whole issue of the Nephilim and the Watchers because it's bizarre. It sounds like mythology. And I admit, it is a, it is a difficult one to really sort of handle. Um, but I'm convinced that the Bible talks about that. And I think that they're afraid to deal with it. So they come up with different interpretations. All oh, the Nephilim are just, it's just a, a phrase for mighty warriors. It's not really giants. And oh, you know, the sons of God that mated with the daughters of men, those are just royalty or, or kings that call themselves gods. It wasn't really sons of God from God's divine counsel. No, no, no. So they try to get around it. Um, but, but most of the people who, or I've had some people who agree with my interpretation, you know, that basically the sons of God are, are divine beings from God's counsel, mate with human women, Nephilim are giants, right? And all this stuff. But then they, they'll, they'll nitpick about really detailed interpretations of things that aren't as important to me. <laughs> so it's kind of funny where it's like, it's not so much about what the Bible's saying as what their interpretation is, you know what I mean? And there's room for differing opinions on that. So I don't really have a problem with that. That's fun to me. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, what do you think um, you had mentioned, and, and I think the arc of the, the giants really sort of, I guess not necessarily ends, but, you know, the, the major sort of lineage of giants seems to come to a halt anyway around Goliath and, and you know, the, the Philistines and stuff. And once they're out of the picture, there isn't a whole lot mentioned, anything obvious anyway, about giants that I'm aware of. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, is that something that you found to be the case as well? And, and tying into that, I believe you have one more, or I guess two more yeah. books uh, that are in the series. What do you plan to do with Jesus Triumphant, and and uh, and then you know I guess where the landing spot is with uh, uh, when giants were upon the earth is that is that kind of a supplementary? Yeah, yeah. When giants upon were upon the earth is actually uh, what I do in each of the novels because I knew that this is going to be a wild interpretation for some people to handle, and you know, and I, you know, again, I know my major audience is going to be Christians, so Christians are you know, they, they tend to demand a little bit more explanation of things. So I thought, 
I'll put in at the back of each book, I put an appendix and I explain some of my research that the book is based on. And this is something that Michael Crichton used to do. You know, he would, he would put an appendix where he explained the real science that his fiction was based on. So I kind of like doing that. So anyway, I did that. And a lot of people were, a lot of Christians were saying, Hey, I really love the appendix as much as the novel. So I thought, well, why don't I? You know, why don't I put all the appendices in one book for those who want to just focus on that? And I realized that it, it wasn't like just an arbitrary collection of things. It also told that story because as the progression of the appendices goes, it creates a narrative itself. And so what I did was I released the book When Giants Were Upon the Earth, and it already has the first draft of my research for Jesus Triumphant in it. And um, the one you know, there, there are several spiritual things that are connected to the Watchers in the Gospels, um, yeah. and, and those are going to come out. But there's also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the interpretation, it's a tradition, it's not certain, but I'm going to use the Enochian interpretation that the demons are the spirits of the dead Nephilim, and that's where they come back in. And I do think theologically that it makes sense with the whole Messian, you know, because think about it, really, there's not much in the Old Testament about demons. There's a couple spots, you know, King Saul was taunted by an evil spirit, but there really isn't much at all, you know, almost nothing. And then all of a sudden, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's this eruption of demonic activity. Why? Why? Well, I think that there's a theological purpose for that. It's not arbitrary, you know, and um, Jesus casting out demons is sort of like casting out the, uh, the uh, evil spirits of the land in Canaan as the Messiah enters in. So, I, I think that there's a spiritual theological connection going on there that I, that I hope to explore, but I'm still in the er early stages of developing the story. Right, and I think, you know, something that I, that I am speculating that you might touch on is that, and I've brought this up in, uh, I have a, a video that talks about the sons of God and the Sethite view debunked, and, and I touch on it, and, and others have touched on this too, but one of the criticisms or the, I guess, you know, I guess it's a rebuttal that you get for the whole Genesis 6 watcher's view is that, you know, the sons of God are the descendants of Seth. And we've, you know, I think we tackled that the last time you were on, but yeah. one of the things they'll say is that, well, the sons of God is a phrase that is used of us in the new Testament. You know, once we're saved, we are children of God things like that. So do you, mm -hmm. do you tackle that at all? And what do you think is going on there in terms of the phrase sons of God? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually I, I agree with them in the sense that I think there is a connection to that. It's not, it's not a separate thing. Right. I think it may be somewhat different, obviously, because we're not the, exactly the same as angels or whatever. But uh, And this is where Michael Heiser's work is very helpful, because as a scholar, he does go into that in more detail. Um, but I am going to try to incorporate some of that. In other words, I do believe that there's a sense in which we, when God originally created man in the garden and stuff, we were intended to be part of his family of sons of God that were around his throne, you know? Right. And, and when the fall came, that broke all that apart, right, and, and separated us. And so, consequently, the goal of getting back to the garden, so to speak, uh, or getting back to what God originally planned, his plan of redemption, what Messiah does is, yeah, I think it, it, we will actually, part of our redemption process and the resurrection and what we become, you know, it says we will, we will be changed and transformed and be like him. Right, we will be like him. Well, we're not going to be gods in the in some literal sense, but we are going to be sons of God, like those around his throne. We will have that that um, that that nature of being in God's presence and being his very children. And so, I don't think the sons of God phrase 
I think that that phrase in the New Testament is somehow connected to the Old Testament phrase. Right. Um, but of course, we are different in that we are human beings, and therefore, you know, there's going to be a difference going on there. But what exactly that is, I'm not sure, and I'm still exploring that. Right. But I do hope to deal with that a little bit in the novel. Yeah, because what I've discovered with it, with, uh, you know, some study on the topic, is that basically the sons of God, or that phrase, represents a direct creation of God. And uh, right. I get that from Luke 3.38, where, you know, it's talking about the lineage all the way, going backwards to Adam. And, you know, uh, uh, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, and Adam is called the son of God. And oh, right, right. So, so it's kind of like, um, and then, of course, when we're saved, we're baptized in the Spirit and we're born again. And when, we, when that happens, we become sons of God in that we are a new creation, right? So, yes. so I, think, I think that the phrase represents literally a direct creation of God. And so when you talk about angels or, you know, these angelic beings or divine hosts and things like that, we're looking at entities or, uh, you know, as, as Mike Kaiser calls it, a, bureaucr a heavenly bureaucracy that yeah. were direct creations of God and that, you know, the sin that they committed was, you know, just as deplorable as the sin that we live in. But we, we are born as sons of Adam, as men. Yeah. And then once we are redeemed, that's when we get the title "sons of God." So I mean, those are you know those are things that right. I've and and you no know, excellent, excellent. In fact, you know, like I said, you're you're a little bit more advanced in in your ability to describe it. I'm still in my my research mode, but I I totally agree with that. And 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 my element that I would bring to that is just that yes, we are new creations. We've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We are we are new, but it's now and not yet. In other words, it, right, we have not right. what will yet become. So I'm, I'm thinking the final consummation will be our total transformation into whatever that sons of God is to be, but that has to be with being around God's presence in his holy throne and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I, I, I appreciate that. Now I'll have to put a thank you to, to Gans in my next book. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was uh, once again scrolling through the character page here, um, just because I think it's so rad. But then every time I get to this uh, picture of the linemen of Moab, I <laughs> wet myself a little bit. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, this was an interesting um, way to portray. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those weird passages in the Bible where, and I write about this in the appendix too, but um, you know, there's this description in, um, let, me, let me see if I can find, do you have the actual text? I'm trying to find it as well. I know mm -hmm. it's uh, their first oh, Chronicles oh, oh, I know twelve. Where it is. First Chronicles twelve. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. They're fierce. Why don't you lions. read that for us? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and now a scripture reading from God. From the Gadites, there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and who are swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Ah, that's actually the second that's actually the second verse. The more specific verse is actually um I know I think I can find it now. Uh, I failed. Uh it's is earlier than that and it, oh here it is. Here's here's where the lion men come from. Um in 2 Samuel 23, uh it's talking about David's mighty men 
And these were the guys that did all these mighty exploits, like killing 800 at one time, right? So these guys were mighty. And some of these mighty men killed some of the giants. In fact, one of them was Benaiah. Benaiah was the captain of David's guard. And he, it says that he killed an Egyptian giant, an unnamed one, who was about seven and a half feet tall. <clears throat> but it also says in this passage, 2 Samuel 23, it says down around verse 20, it says, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada he struck down two Ariels of Moab. He also went down, struck a lion in a pit, and struck down an Egyptian who was a giant. So this word Ariels is a very difficult Hebrew word. Many scholars, it's a confusing word. They're not sure what it means. But, but some translations call it lion men of Moab. And the reason why is because it sort of is a, a combination of the word for lion, but also the word El is for God. And so it's like lions of God or lion men who are mighty men. And so there's, there's one tradition that, that speaks of these men um, that they were kind of like lion-like creatures. Like they were men, but they had this lion-like appearance. And then that other chapter, uh, there's another <clears throat> passage that... Um, that the Gans had mentioned, where it also describes these Gadites. And the Gadites, if I can find that one, was, where, where was that passage? Do you remember that one? Uh, the one I just, Chronicles, somewhere in First Chronicles. Chronicles, yeah. The, yeah. the one I just read? Yeah. Uh, First Chronicles 12.8. Right. So, First Chronicles, here it is, yeah. So, it talks about from the Gadites, that there were, there were men whose faces were like the faces of lions and who were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Well, you can look at that and say, well, that's metaphorical. And that, that's true. It is metaphorical, <clears throat> um, swift as gazelles and, and using animals as a comparison. However, the interesting thing is, is Gat, the tribe of the Gadites were over in the land of Moab. And this, this other, this concept of whose faces were like the faces of lions actually could be a literal transcription. And they may, so in my story, David Ascendant, what I did was I said, well, look, if the, if Gadite, the Gadite tribe is over in the land of Moab, so some of the Moabites might have joined the tribe of Gad, and they could have been these lion men, and they became these Gadite lion men, and it even named some, gives some of their names. And so, <clears throat> it's not entirely sure what that means, but there is a, a tradition of scholarship that indicates that these Ariels, which is the Hebrew word, may actually be men that were kind of like lions. And what that means, I don't know. But in my book, I basically made them, you know, they had manes and they were wild, but they were also warriors and they were also very loyal men. And they actually, I have this, this um, tri tribe of these Gadite lion men of Moab joined David. And then it also says in that Second Samuel passage, though, it says that Benaiah himself struck down two of them, two of these lion men of Moab. So I actually um, tell a story of how that occurred, and again, we don't know the details from the Bible, so I had to make it up and integrated it in the storyline. So, you know, this is where I'm pushing the boundaries. I'm not entirely sure. There is some scholarship that suggests maybe these might be some kind of uh, chimeric, you know, human beings mixed with lion genetic DNA. I don't know. Right. Um, but I decided to go with it and, and push that because even if they weren't literally lion-like men, they were certainly mighty warriors that, that stood out. And so, uh, again, I'm using that fantasy element. I'm not entirely sure what it means, and the scholarship isn't sure on it, but there is some that says that it, that it might be this sort of men who look like lions. So I right. went with it. 
I like it. Well, if the, if the scholars are saying we don't know, then, you know, it's that much easier to inject your own, <laughs> you know, sort of imagery of it. And I, I always figured that it was sort of uh, lion men. Or, you there know, are stranger things in the Bible. Yeah. Exactly. And that's my point. And I'm, not, I'm, I'm willing to admit that there could be weird things that we don't have any explanation for. And that's, again, when you're writing fiction... You, you have a little bit more freedom to go with it because I'm not gonna, I don't have to sit there and, and, and prove it with absolute certainty. Um, but I think my interpretation is still theologically consistent with what the Bible is basically saying. So that's where, where you know, if you read David Ascendant, you're going to see these wild things come up, lion men of Moab. You're going to see these giants and, and you're going to see them battling, um, battling some of these mighty men. And, uh, I came up with some really wild, some real wild things. Uh, like for instance, okay. Let me let me tell you this weird thing. That one passage where it talks about the, um, which I'm going to pull up here, uh, where it talks about the various um, giants, if I can find it. In one of these passages um, about the giants in, in S- Samuel, it talks about Ishbibanab. And Ishbibanab, it says he had a new sword and he thought to kill David. Right. Well, that word, it's not, there's no word in there that says new sword. That's actually filled in by translators because the way the sentence is constructed in Hebrew, some scholars say that it, it says new weapon. It actually just means a new weapon, and they just felt, well, it must be a sword, so they put in sword. Hmm. But what if it wasn't? What if it was this wild new weapon that we don't know about? Right. And, uh, and as a matter of fact, um, that was what, how they described the loop javelin that, that Goliath had. It said that it, it, you know, it had a shaft like a weaver's beam, and some people assume, oh, that means it was real big and thick like a weaver's beam, but no, it doesn't mean that. It actually means, if you look at a weaver's beam, a weaver's beam had loops and stuff, and it was basically the, the Jews looking at the strange new weapon, which was from Mycenae, and they, they created a javelin with a, a rope connected to it that would would stick to their fingers so that when they threw the javelin, they would use the rope to help project it further and faster. And, and that's what looked like a weaver's beam that had loop strings on it, right? right? And it was basically a way for them to throw the javelin farther and faster and stronger. And so that's an example where the, the Hebrews may not have seen it before, so they describe what it looks like. And in this case, it says he had a new weapon. And guess what? I have a weapon in my storyline of Chronicles of the Nephilim that sort of ended up starting in the first novel and has gone, has been handed down throughout the series, and it's called Rahab, the Whip Sword. And so mm. I kind of worked that in there in a very clever way. So my, my point here is that there's, there's some oddities in the text that I try to incorporate into the story in a way that will, people will really find exciting. Right. Uh, awesome. You know, here's another one. Here's another one. Ishbi Banab. That's one of the giants. Well, if you look at the name, it might be Ishbi Ben Ob. And the word Ben means son of. Right. And the word Ob is actually the name of a necromancer or a medium. It's, it's the Hebrew word for necromancer or medium. Like when Saul goes to, Saul goes to visit that witch of Endor, it's, yeah. it's actually an Ob of Endor, which is actually a necromancer or a medium, not necessarily what we know as witch. And so I thought, well, maybe his name is an indication that this giant was the son of some Ob or necromancer, so he has demonic activity around him because of that. So these are some of the things that I try to incorporate uh, out of my research into the story that I think people will find wild. Yeah. And wait till you see, wait till you see what the evil spirit, who the evil spirit is who haunts Saul. It, 
<laughs> It'll be very for those who know the series, they're gonna love it. Awesome. That's cool. That I I I need to know that. <laughs> I'm going to <laughs> feverishly read this book. Um well awesome. That's really cool. You know, I've really enjoyed hearing I think hearing uh what you have to say about the book beforehand actually gives a lot more insight into um you know what 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 I can expect and actually kind of raises the awareness of um kind of your process of writing you know what i mean so it's not it's not all just imaginary stuff that you thought up it's stuff that stems from actual research and looking a little bit deeper into the biblical texts yeah, you know, quite frankly, I'm not really that creative or original. I, I, <laughs> I steal a lot from the ancient texts, and and uh, and you're right, though. That's one of the reasons why I I knew that people would read this story, Christians, who who are familiar with the Bible, and they might think this is so wild, it's all made up. But you're right; so much of it is actually based on research. That's one of the reasons why I put the appendix in there, so people can really see, like, oh no, it wasn't completely made up. It's definitely creatively adapted and you know integrated. But it's definitely, I try to base most everything in there. I try to base it on, if not something in the Bible or the background of the Bible text, but something rooted in the ancient Near Eastern uh, worldview that, that will make sense of it. So, yeah, that's, that's been my goal all along. And just, just cool. real briefly, just because I pulled it up and I wanted to mention it, uh, the, that passage you talked about with uh, the new weapon, it talks about how it was a spear and it was 300 shekels of bronze. And... Uh -huh. uh, I just did the quick calculation. Um, 300 shekels is thought to be about seven and a half pounds. So ah. that's, that's a pretty big spearhead if it's seven and a half pounds. Yeah. And it would take a pretty strong fella to, to you know, throw that effectively. And it would probably Absolutely. be pretty damaging. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. And then there's another text where it talks about, it actually gives um, uh, a man that, that um, and again, this was... Um, killed by um by jonathan uh son of shimei it says that he he had um six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot 24 in number right and he was also descended from the giants and this is where uh a lot of us get our notion that you know maybe maybe these nephilim had these six fingers and six toes not necessarily all of them but um but this is one of those striking indications that maybe that's one of the traits of some of the nephilim certainly some of the some of the giants, you know, right. Um, um, we're, we're kind of coming towards the end here, but I, I am curious and I want to ask you because, you know, one of the, the things that I'm noticing is that it seemed like the descendants of the giants were somehow, I don't know if they intermingled with human seed. I, I don't know if, you know, that's plausible even, but what do you think happened as far as, um, I mean, do you think that there's, there's humans walking the earth today that have a very minute strand of DNA that might have a little Nephilim gene. I mean, what, like where does, how far <laughs> does it go, you know, in your mind and in your research? Yeah. Well, yeah, you bring up a great question and to be quite honest, it, it that's above my pay grade. Sure. Uh, I have not looked much into that. I do see that as being somewhat of a problem, somewhat of an issue that should probably be thought through and worked out. I have not been able to spend much time in that, working that out. However, I think just in the biblical text alone, the impression that they're giving is, or at least the impression in the text that I see is, you know, that, that a lot of these giants are connected to the Holy Land. They're the ones that God once wiped out, and he pretty much wipes them out and wipes them out 
uh, mostly with Joshua, then finishes wiping them out with David, and then we don't hear about them anymore. So uh, whether or not they continue on beyond that, I don't know. And it wouldn't be unbiblical to suggest that it might be, because one of my premises in all my novels, which I think is in all the stories of the Bible, is this, and that is that... that um, no matter how much God does judge evil, whether it's Noah's flood, or David and the giants, or Joshua in the Holy Land, he never fully wipes it all out. And evil always, there's always a little remnant of evil that continues on, even to this present day, right? right. I mean, we can't deny that. That's a reality. And so, the point is not that God doesn't save well enough. The point is, is that God does periodic uh, you know, judgment of evil or periodic um, making the world better, etc. But there's always a remnant of evil that continues on until, of course, the end when Christ comes and, and finally destroys death itself and all that. And I think that the, that's part of the message of the Bible is, no matter how much goodness God brings, no matter how much judgment He does bring on sin, there's still some that always survives. And that doesn't make God incompetent. That merely means He has a plan f for what He's accomplishing and that the continuation of evil is still part of that, and we can't deny that reality, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's why I think that even though, as I look at the text, I don't hear anything more about the giants in the Bible beyond that, it doesn't necessarily mean that there, there isn't something that continues on. But what it is, I have not speculated into that. That's, that's gone beyond what I've, what I've researched. Yeah. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on the show. Brian Gadawa, the author of the new book, David Ascendant, book seven of the uh, Chronicles of the Nephilim. Um, thanks so much, man. How do we get to look at more of your stuff and where can we get the book and tell us all your things? Two quick things, and yeah, definitely. The site, the website you guys have we've all been talking about that has all the cool artwork, free artwork, free articles, cool pictures, yada, yada, is chroniclesofthenephilim.com. Chroniclesofthenephilim.com. And then you can buy any of the books. They're all exclusively on Amazon.com in both Kindle or uh, paperback. I've been finding that a lot of people have been really getting into auto audiobooks lately. I've been selling as much on my audio audible audiobooks as I have been on my Kindle and paperbacks mm. because uh, people are really getting into that. So yeah, you can get it in all three formats through Amazon. Yeah, and maybe you might hear a little bit of uh, Basil, the awesome voice actor. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. You betcha, man. All right, you take it easy. Make sure to go to Amazon and Kindle and Audible and chroniclesofthenephilim.com. Check out his books, his audiobooks. Really, really cool stuff. Go do that right now or else. And thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. But until you do, think outside the cage. <laughs>